And all right, Psalm 99, as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms, we're in this short little section here, these Psalms that are often referred to as coronation Psalms, and the reason they tend to get those names, or that name, is because they seem to be a collection of a few of the Psalms that really focus on the uh, rulership of Jesus, the fact of Jesus being upon his throne, that he reigns as king, Uh, that he is the one ruling, and that really that is something that we do wise to remember, that despite what it looks like, uh, the Lord always remains in charge, that behind the scenes, whatever we see on an earthly format, uh, is no indication of what is happening in the spiritual and the eternal realm. Uh, And that's a great comfort to us, as well as something that's to be a very sobering reality, to just keep our hearts in check to realize ultimately because he is king and he is judge, that's who ultimately we will all answer to, uh, that ultimately we'll give account as we one day stand before him as the ultimate judge and the ultimate king. You notice Psalm 99 opens in the same way that a few of the Psalms have. We saw back in Psalm 97, as well as I believe it was Psalm 93, this same opening where it tells us very simply in the first verse, the Lord reigns. Again, Yahweh God or Jehovah God he says, is the one who reigns. So it does not matter who is ruling on an earthly throne. And there were different kings throughout the history of Israel. Uh, There were different times where different world empires, whether it was the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians, when uh, different governments had pharaohs and rulers upon thrones. But through all those things and through all human history and ultimately in the culmination The Lord has been reigning. He's never been dethroned. The Bible, in fact, tells us that he's the one who sets up kings. And Daniel says he's also the one who tears down kings. And ultimately, things will culminate in his literal reign upon the earth. As our Lord comes back, one of the things he will do is he will literally rule and reign upon this earth. And he will take to himself his throne as the true king of kings. Now, We saw in Psalm 97 the emphasis upon the Lord reigns, and there said the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, and let the multitudes of the isles be glad. So there in Psalm 97, we're told that we should celebrate the fact that the Lord is reigning, and the fact that he is ruling, that he is in charge, and reigning over all things is something that we should rejoice in, that we should celebrate, that we should be joyful about, that despite the gloom that we may see or our displeasure with who's on the throne, in a sense, from an earthly perspective, that we can celebrate and be joyful. Thank goodness that the Lord's still reigning. No matter what's going on, no matter what it looks like, thank goodness we can be joyful and celebrate the Lord is reigning. Now here, you notice the tone's a little bit different. Not that we should just rejoice that the Lord reigns, but that we should also be very reverent about that sobering reality. Because here he says, the Lord reigns, Psalm 99, let the people's, notice not, tre- not rejoice, but let the people's tremble. The idea is be in awe, be in reverential fear because the Lord reigns. And the Lord is going to hold to count every one, every nation, every person. And because the Lord reigns, he says, this is something we should also be very reverential about, that the peoples should tremble. For he dwells between the cherubim and let the earth be moved. The idea is be moved or shaken with fear, with a healthy fear and, and a reverence. Now here we're told that the Lord dwells between the cherubim and that term cherubim is a a plural form of one of the types of angelic beings in the bible we we see there's an an archangel those given that title categorically there's also the seraphim and we also speak of, of and hear of the cherubim these different classifications of angelic beings and here it says the lord dwells between the cherubim now That's the plural form. Cherub would be the singular, cherubim in the plural. And here it says that the Lord, his presence, is dwelling in the midst of or between the cherubim. That is, they're surrounding him. And we see the cherubim initially in the Garden of Eden. The first time they show up, they're there. And they're the ones who are blocking the way for Adam and Eve to go back to the tree of life. 
so that they don't live perpetually in a fallen condition. The tree of life seemed to have some life-sustaining quality to it when God created such things in the Garden of Eden. And after man and woman fell in the garden, God did not want them to remain in that fallen, sinful condition perpetually because God had a plan for redemption. And so God put, remember, the cherubim there to keep them from going back to the tree of life. Now, we see the cherubim numerous other times. They end up being there on the, as a part of the ornamental decoration on the veil going from the holy place into the holy of holies in both the tabernacle and the temple. Remember, it was divided into two chambers. The first room that you could enter into of the tabernacle or temple was where there was the, a table of showbread. There was the altar of incense. There was the golden lampstands. This is where the priests would go in and do their regular routine ministry work. And then there was that veil that separated the, the outer room from the inner room further back, which was the holy of holies or the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And remember, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And it says that the mercy seat had upon it these two cherubim, which wings touched in the middle. And that was where God manifested his presence. That's where the glory or the, the heavy, weighty, the kabod, the Hebrew it is, the, the substantial manifestation of the presence of God was there in the holy place. And he was manifested as dwelling between the cherubim. And of course, all of those things were a picture in some way, it'll be interesting to see, but many of those things in the tabernacle and the temple, they were a picture of the actual heavenly eternal realm. And so whether this is referring to God's presence dwelling between the cherubim there in the tabernacle or the temple, or whether it's a reference to him dwelling between the cherubim in heaven, the, the point being is that he is reigning upon a throne and he is stronger than even all the angelic beings. He's created all things and his awesome presence is something to be revered. You, you notice when you see in the Bible, even the very angelic beings, Isaiah chapter six and other places, book of Revelation, what we see around the throne of God, the cherubim, the seraphim, they are all bowing down in reverence and they're all stricken at the incredible presence of almighty God. Uh, and they're in his presence perpetually and continually. And so the idea being is that if they stand in all of God's presence, if they tremble at God's presence, how much more is weak, finite, sinful, frail human beings should we have reverential awe towards the presence of God? You know, I shudder sometimes when I hear people speak very casually about God's presence. You know, talk about the, the big man upstairs or, you know, I'm, when I get up there, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. Well, he's going to give you a piece of his mind real quick. You're going to give him a piece of your mind? Do you, do you know who God is? I mean, do you, when, when they see angels in the scripture, people fall on their faces in complete fear. And this is angelic beings. And we think somehow we're going to stand before God and, and you know, be casual or trivial in his presence. And again, we, we appreciate the grace of God and should realize what a blessed privilege it is that because of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ, that by grace through faith, we have access directly into the presence of this powerful, almighty God, this king, this ruler upon the throne. Remember, in the days of the king of Persia, unless he extended the golden scepter, you, you couldn't even walk into the presence of the king of Persia unless he extended the golden scepter or you would be put to death instantaneously. That was a human king. And, and if earthly kings have such power and, again, authority and, and they are to be revered in such a way, how much more should we always remember our God, the Lord, reigns? He's dwelling between the cherubim in awesome glory and great power, and we should respect his preference. That's why he says, let the peoples of the earth tremble, that we should be moved, that we should stand in all of God, the Bible says. Verse 2 says, for the Lord is great in Zion. And again, Zion remembers a reference typically to the area of Jerusalem, and he was great there. And he is high above, notice, all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. So again, continuing to speak, extolling the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God. His name represents his character and all of who he is in his being. You know, we were just speaking, I think it's past Sunday morning, myself and someone else, about just all the incredible names of God alone that exist in the scripture. Uh, you know, Yahweh 
God and, and, and the Lord, you know, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our batter, you know, Jehovah Seboeth, just the fact that the Lord, our peace and the idea of that God is so great. He's so awesome that whatever we need, whether it's peace, protection, provision, whatever it is, he becomes that he doesn't just supply it. He literally, do you need peace? The Lord is your peace. Do you need provision? The Lord is your provision. And, and he is such an awesome and a great God that literally he's the Bible calls the all becoming one. That whatever we need, that's what he becomes for us to supply. Even the Lord, our salvation. Ultimately, that is what the name of Jesus means. Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. And in this incredible reality, therefore, he is high above all. And he says, therefore, let them praise your great and awesome name for he is Holy, and again, that word holy just means to be set apart, to be distinct. It means to be completely whole or wholesome with nothing lacking. The idea of when it speaks of God being holy, it's a term that speaks of how God is so much different and set apart from everything else. So as we said before, there is creator, that's creator God, and then everything else is creation. Whether it's the angels, whether it's the universe, the earth, the solar systems, the atmosphere, whether it's you and I as people, everything else is created, everything else. So there is God alone, distinct and separate as creator God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the maker of all things, the one who rules and reigns over all things. And then there is everything else that exists. And so this idea that he is holy speaks predominantly not just of him being pure and righteous in that sense we might ultimately think of holiness but the idea is that he is so other he is just completely there's nothing and no one like him he is completely separate from all other things and set apart and and here this is the idea and you know what's interesting is he says here verse three he is holy notice the end of verse five Worship at his footstool, for he is holy. And then again, verse 9, for the Lord our God is holy. You notice in this psalm, three times there's this repeated refrain of the Holy Spirit. He is holy, he is holy, he is holy. And here's what's interesting. Ultimately, in Isaiah chapter 6, what is the statement that comes forth as Isaiah gets a glimpse of the throne of God? And what does he hear? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, repeated three times. You get to the book of Revelation, you see around the throne of God, one of the things they are saying repetitiously, holy, 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 separate, 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 wholesome, 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 set apart, set apart, set apart, pure and different than anything else that exists because you are creator and you are king and everything else is just weak things that have been created in comparison. There's nothing like God. You know, what is interesting is that the term holy is the predominant, uh, you might say, I guess, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? A distinctive adjective or attribute that is mentioned more than any of the other attributes of God. In fact, the only place where we find that repetitious refrain, holy, 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 is with the word holy. We don't see of God other things that are true of his attributes, but we don't see love, love, love. Power, power, power. But we do see in the Bible, holy, holy, holy. This seems to be the predominant attribute of God because he is so separate, so unique, so distinct and set apart and wholesome and wonderful in his ways that all of his other attributes stem from the fact of his incredible holiness. That his love is a holy love, his power is a holy power, his righteousness and everything about him is stemming from the fact that he is so unique and set apart so here three times this reference to holy 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 and later we see it culminating in phrases even as the throne of god is seen in scripture verse four says the king's strength also loves justice for you has established equity you have executed justice and righteousness in jacob so speaking of how god reigns notice his strength is his throne is characterized by a love for justice that is doing what is right, always doing what is fair, always establishing what is equitable. Again, the idea is that God does not show partiality. God does not give special favor to the rich and God does not give special favor to the poor. 
God does not give special favor to one class of people over another class of people. God does not look at one class of people as superior and another class of people as inferior, whether that's race, whether that's ethnicity, whether that's nationality, whether that's social class. God knows nothing of that. What God knows is one distinctive, saved, unsaved, converted, unconverted. The Bible says that in Christ Jesus, there's no, neither barbarian, Scythian, Jew, or Greek, male or female. The idea is from God's perspective, he, those identities, yes, they exist on a secondary level, and we don't want to disqualify that. God's created beautiful diversity. But one of the things God is a huge advocate of, of is stop creating division by overfocus on differences. And that's being highly propagated in our culture right now. And that is completely diabolical. It's divisive. It's destructive. It's teaching certain people to claim and to feel like that they are victims. And it are teaching other people, you should feel horrible about yourself because you are a rotten person that oppresses everyone else. And the Bible knows nothing of this. The Bible knows a God who says, I deal in equity and injustice, and I don't give partiality or favoritism to any person for any reason. I love every person equally, and every person has equal opportunity to become what they would choose to become by yielding their free will in regards to relationship with God and all the other things that go along with that. And certainly we all have different experiences and upbringings, but at the cross, there is level ground. And that's how God would prefer it to be. That the only thing that we see as distinctions is the things that God sees as distinctions. And that we would esteem those things and that we would realize every one of us has personal responsibility. Every one of us has accountability. Every one of us receives a fair, listen, and I know this bothers some, a fair lot in life. Oh, my lot's not fair. You don't know what my lot was. Well, listen, everyone from God's perspective that ends up in eternity is going to be saying righteous and true are all of your ways. We saw last week, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. We may not understand all of that here, and that's why we question God. And God's got big shoulders. You can question him. That's why sometimes we you know, get frustrated over this or we feel that's fair. And I don't want to diminish hardship and difficulty. And we, we go through some really tough things on this earth. We live in a fallen world where there's sickness and disease and the effects of sin and people are selfish and sinful and broken and humanity is full of problems and we treat each other badly and, and our sin nature causes us to make our own mistakes and we do hurtful and harmful things to others. And I'm not diminishing the pain and the problems of what we all experience. But at the end of the day, God ultimately in his superintending over things is working in such a way where, as I said before, his primary concern is not our temporal comfort, but our eternal destiny and, and our eternal preparation. So therefore, what God may allow, may not allow, what God may permit, may not permit. You know, it's amazing how many times, sadly, we, we want to be really thankful when things go well to God. And then if anything goes away, we don't like it. We're angry at God. And we want to blame God for everything. When the reality is, is God is superintending even over all things humanity's doing and just natural effects of sin and the curse in this world. But in all those things, God's primary purpose as he superintends is winning our heart into a relationship with Jesus Christ, getting us prepared for eternity so we can be spared from the suffering of earth, which just culminates in worse suffering if someone goes to hell and the lake of fire forever, and just to keep cultivating our dependence upon God and our relationship with God and developing our faith. And so therefore, we must always remember that God rules in a way behind the scenes, superintending and coordinating even things that men do in rebellion to him, because ultimately he wants to establish and execute what is just and righteous. And he says here, God established equity. He's executed justice ultimately and bringing about what is righteous in Jacob, a reference to the nation of Israel. And so therefore, in light of this, he says, verse five, the proper response to reverence to God's rulership and his awesomeness, he says, verse five, exalt, which means to lift up or to elevate, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is, there a second time again, holy. Now, almost kind of an interesting thing to think about. The Bible tells us, verse 2, that he is high above all peoples. 
So God is in a high and holy place. He's upon his throne in heaven. He's, he's elevated over everything in creation. He's the ultimate king and ruler. So the question is, if God is already in the highest place, literally, and he's already in the highest place of rulership, how do you exalt him even higher? I mean, how do you really do that? How do you elevate God's status? That's, the word exalt means to elevate or to lift up. How do you lift up one who's already completely high up? who's higher than all things. Well, the way you do that, the Bible teaches, is by lowering yourself, by humbling yourself. Because notice what he says here, worship at his footstool. What was the footstool? Well, the footstool was the place where someone would rest their foot upon something. And so the idea there is, and the scripture says that a few different occasions, it says on one occasion, the tabernacle is God's footstool, speaks of Jerusalem as his footstool, and it just speaks even numerous times of the earth itself being God's footstool and so what exactly he's referring to in this case we're not 100 percent sure the idea here is to worship and the worship it means to to bow down to, to bow down or kiss towards and here worship at his footstool the idea is as we humble ourselves before the lord as we bow down in humility and submission, whether we understand everything intellectually, whether we agree with everything going on circumstantially, that we exalt the Lord by just bowing ourselves down in humility and reverence at his footstool as the king of kings, and we bow at his footstool. And by doing such, as we lower ourselves, we, in a sense, exalt the Lord. And we lift up the Lord as we bow ourselves down in humility. Verse 6, he then says, And Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered to them and spoke to them in a cloudy pillar, and they kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. Now, he couples together here, notice, three figures from the Old Testament. Moses, the great shepherd leader of Israel who led them out of Egypt and guided them through the wilderness. Aaron, remember, who became the first high priest. Aaron was his brother, and he was the one that served as the first high priest when they installed the, the tabernacle and temple worship system. And then Samuel, many, many uh, years later down the road, became the one who was a prophet in the days who provided direction to the people. Uh, ultimately, we went through First and Second Samuel together. He was just prior to the days of David's time. Now, what's interesting is we only know in a literal sense that Aaron was an actual person who served in the capacity, I guess in a literal sense, you might say, of the office of a priest. But yet Moses and Samuel also functioned in priestly ways because the priest basically served... As a mediator, they, they function in a way whereby they represented God to the people and they also represented the people unto God. And so they function in this way as intercessors and mediators to help people to get to know God and also to help people in their relationship with God to represent them as they would go before the Lord in intercession. And all of them function in that capacity. And here, this seems to be the emphasis, focusing upon their intercessory ministry. Because you notice in verse 6, he says, Moses and Aaron and Samuel were among those who, he says, called upon his name. That is the distinctive thing in all three of their lives that's elevated here as something significant and important is they were men who were serious about intercession, prayer, standing in the gap in prayer and, and calling upon the Lord. And notice this ministry is the most effective ministry Ultimately, if you think about it, because lots of other things that we do in ministry, you know, we can have impure motives. We, we can perhaps not be very fruitful in what we do, but there's something very pure about the ministry of prayer. Just private, sincere prayer of calling upon the name of the Lord. You know, we're, we're typically not you know, really doing anything other than just conversating with God and asking for God to help. And these men, they called upon the Lord and notice verse six as he answered them. That is, their ministry was effective because they asked for the Lord's intervention. And there is no better thing, really, that any of us can do, whether Moses or Aaron or Samuel or whoever it may be, than to do exactly what these men did, is to call upon the Lord and to believe that we serve a God who reigns upon a throne, but yet though he reigns upon a throne as a powerful king, 
He is always open to receive us into his presence, to hear our prayers, to listen to our requests. And he is a God and a king who answers and he responds and he acts on our behalf. And here it says, they called upon the Lord and he answered them. And look, how much more is that of great value to you and I? The book of Hebrews tells us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. That because of the work of Jesus Christ, we can come directly into the presence of God. Imagine that. And the one reigning as a king upon a throne who's very powerful is also the one who you can say, Father. That's incredible. To be able to have that kind of intimacy with someone who has so much power and so much ability to act on our behalf. So he says, they called upon the Lord and he answered them. He answered their prayers and he will do the same for us. And that's why it's wise for us to always call upon the Lord. And notice he didn't just answer them, but also verse seven, it says that God also spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. That is, they heard God's voice. God communicated things to them that they were to do. And what did they do, verse 7? They weren't just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, because it says they kept his testimonies in the ordinance he gave them. So if we're going to call upon the Lord, we need to realize that God's not into just monologue. God's into dialogue. And so if we call upon the Lord, he may answer our prayer, but he also, in answer to our prayer, may say, this is something I want to speak to you about. And when he speaks to us about something, our job is to be responsive. So they called upon the Lord, he answered them, but then he also at times would speak to them and their responsibility was to keep the testimonies that he gave to them. In the same way with us, that when the Lord speaks to us in our times of prayer, we're talking to him about something and he says, okay, I hear what you've been talking to me about. Now, this is what I want you to do in light of that. This is the step I want you to take or the, the act of obedience I want you to follow through with. Our responsibility is to, is to carry out and keep the testimonies of he has given to us and obey him afterwards in obedience. He says, verse eight, you answered them, O Lord, our God, and you were to them God who forgives. What a beautiful title, God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds, and then he comes back to that refrain again, exalt the Lord, our God, worship at his holy hill, for the Lord, our God is holy. So notice, he not only celebrates the fact that the Lord answered them, but here he refers to God in another beautiful description as the God who forgives. And that was very important because Moses was a great leader, but Moses was not a perfect man, right? Remember, Moses had his fair share of mistakes. He, you know, on that one occasion, you know, murdered one of the, you know, uh, Egyptians there when he, when he got upset and angry and thought, God's called me to be a deliverer, so let me get to the delivering process. And he couldn't even bury one Egyptian in the sand successfully by himself. And, and, and Moses, on numerous occasions, made mistakes, he erred. And so Moses needed to not only know God, but he needed to know that God was the God who forgives. That when he erred, he could turn to God and confess his sin and receive pardon and, and receive cleansing from guilt and that that could be taken away from him and that he could continue to serve in that way. Same way with Aaron. Aaron had his fair share of errors from the golden calf to complaining and criticizing Moses's leadership together with Miriam. And even Samuel himself wasn't a perfect man. But even those who were great men of God were still men at best and they all needed to know God, though they prayed to him and heard from him. They needed to also know that he was a God who would forgive when they failed because we all fail. And, and, and by the grace of God, how wonderful that we can all know that we serve this awesome, powerful, holy God, but yet he is God who forgives. God who forgives. The things that you've done wrong in your past that cause stain and guilt in your conscience, he's the God who forgives. He can cleanse all that. The things that maybe you've struggled or made a mistake with recently, he is the God who forgives. The Bible tells us, and I believe it's you know, Malachi, that he is a God, or Malachi or Micah, he is God ready to pardon. What a wonderful thing. You know, ready to pardon. He's always looking to take away the guilt, the stain of our mistake. And no matter what you have done, there is nothing through the work of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ that cannot be cleansed. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He is the God who forgives. 
And, you know, for many of us, that should be one of the greatest reasons that we want to exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, just simply because of the great forgiveness he's brought into our life from our own mistakes. But notice he says, you are them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. So notice the connection there. Forgiveness and pardon from punishment removed. But yet God did allow at times the consequences, the natural consequences to still unfold. So he says, you are the God who forgives, yet you took vengeance upon their deeds. The idea is you allowed the consequences of sin and error to still unfold in their lives from time to time. And there is a difference. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to also still reap some of the consequences of our bad decisions. And sometimes it's those very consequences that keep us and train us from going back down that same path again, right? I mean, it's that when you burn your hand on the stove, it's the pain of burning your hand on the stove that sticks in your memory bank that makes you not want to touch the stove again. And so it's the same way. Sin is not just something that you know is wrong. It's something that's destructive and painful and problematic. So sometimes God will allow the natural consequences, even in a very merciful way, some of the natural consequences to still be there, the struggle, the hardship, the difficulty to be the very things that, that though he's already purged the guilt from us, he wants to purge the, the tendency to go down that path again. So God will let some of the consequence serve that purpose to really kind of take vengeance upon us in a, in a measured way that we would not want to commit those same wrong deeds again. Psalm 100 very popular song, psalm. It's the only psalm that we're told is a psalm of thanksgiving, and it celebrates, again, the greatness of God in our relationship to him. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. So again, the idea here is enthusiastic, passionate. Again, not just joyful singing, but here joyful shout. It's just a celebration to the Lord. Notice he says this should be done in all lands. All people should come to know him in this way. And then verse two, he says, serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with singing. So notice we're told to do two things as an act of worship. The first thing as an act of worship is that we can serve the Lord as an act of worship. And notice he says here, serve the Lord with gladness. With gladness, the idea is the opposite of drudgery, complaining, feeling like an obligation or a duty. He says, if we're going to serve the Lord as an act of worship, we should serve the Lord with gladness. The idea is with a sense of appreciation for the privilege to get to do it. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would be blown away the rest of my life just to get into heaven and know my sins are forgiven. But to think about the reality that on top of that, to some degree, God lets me touch the things of his kingdom and to some degree participate in the work of the kingdom of God or do things that involve serving his purposes and helping other people in their relationship with God or serving to fulfill the, the work of the Lord on this earth. And that's a huge privilege. It's an incredible opportunity. And so the Bible says, look, when we're going to serve the Lord, yes, we should serve him as an act of worship. But he says, if you want it to be pure worship, then he says, when you serve the Lord, the attitude of your heart should be gladness, appreciation, thankfulness that you even get to do it. And in a sense of excitement, wow, this is such a privilege, Lord. This is so, so wonderful that I get to do this. This is incredible. I can't believe you're letting me do this. I can't believe you're giving me the opportunity to be involved in your work or to, to serve you and serve your people in some way. And look, this is very important because sometimes we have to keep our hearts in check. And sometimes I hear people talking about, you know, a, a commitment they've made to serve the Lord or they're, you know, describing something I do for the Lord. And, and, and it's just it's just an obvious drudgery. Oh, why did I sign up for children's ministry? Why did I do that? Well, oh, every month I just... Oh, every month I got to do that. Well, stop doing it. Stop doing it then. Because there's no reward in it then. If it's a drudgery, you're not serving the Lord in gladness. And God's not looking for slaves. He's looking for servants. And I realize from time to time, yes, you know, it's, it's difficult to maintain some of our commitments, but the attitude of our heart should be vastly different. 
than complaining or, oh, I got to do this. It's so hard to do this. Well, look, you know, God can always raise up someone else, and we always need to remember that. Remember, that was the, the case with Esther. Remember Mordecai said to her? He said to her, listen, God's going to bring deliverance. And if you don't step forward and step into the story and let God use you, then God will raise up deliverance from elsewhere. The idea is, it's not like God's going, oh man, if she doesn't follow through, the whole program's done. The Jews are destroyed and the Messiah will never come. And it wasn't as if God's hands were tied, but he says, but how do you know whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, maybe everything that's happened in your life has brought you to this day, to that place, to this opportunity, so you can step into the story and you get the privilege to be used by God, to serve God, to do something for God. And so, so important that as an act of worship, it's not just singing to the Lord and giving to the Lord, but one of our acts of worship is out of our worship of the Lord, we actually work for the Lord and we serve the Lord. But so important when we do that, that we serve him with gladness. And if our hearts kind of got off track with that, Lord, change my heart, you know, help me to either have an attitude adjustment or Lord, maybe I need to, to step back until I can serve you in a way where I'm thankful I get to do it and appreciative. And that I can do it with an attitude of where I delight to do your will. So again, just a great exhortation. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. Be grateful and appreciative. And come before his presence when you come, notice, with singing. And we've seen that repetitiously all throughout the Psalms. That when we come into the presence of God, he wants us to come lifting our voices, singing unto him. It's one of the ways he likes to be honored and our expression of praise to his greatness. Verse three, what's one of the ways to do that? Well, to know, and the idea is to know experientially, to experience of the Lord that he is God, and that it's he who's made us and not we ourselves, and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So here in verse three, he says that it's important that we know by experiential uh, you know, uh, kind of an encounter with God that we know, first of all, that he is the one who has made us, that we know him as our creator, that we appreciate God. You own me because you created me. I belong to you. When someone creates something, it belongs to them. When someone makes something, they're its owner. And the Bible says that God created us from the earliest days of the Garden of Eden, God created Adam from the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostril the breath of life and man became a living being. And each one of us, God's created us. Conception comes from the Lord. God opens the womb. God grants conception. God determines the exact number of days for every single life. And there's no mistake in any life. Every life has some degree of purpose from God's perspective. And it says that he knits us together in our mother's womb. And again, our lives belong to God. He is our maker. And our ultimate purpose, the primary goal of life, is to come to know the one who has made you, to recognize that, that you're not a self-made purpose person, you're not a self-sustained person. In fact, isn't it interesting that the Bible says he has made us and not we ourselves? What's one of the you know, very arrogant, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made man. Well, that's just silliness. The Bible says you're not self-made, you were made by God. He made you. He knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. And so God has made us. He's our creator, our owner. And it's important that we understand that about him. That's one of the things that inspires us to serve him, to honor him, to worship him. And not only has he made us and therefore we belong to him, but we are also the people we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And this analogy here of God being a shepherd and us being his sheep. And we see this all throughout the scripture that the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus ultimately says in the New Testament, John 10, I am the good shepherd. The Bible writes in Hebrews as well as in First Peter that he is the great shepherd. It says in Hebrews and First Peter says that he's the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. So we like sheep, who are weak and dependent and all we like sheep, what, have gone astray, the Bible says. And that though God's made us and created us, we err in our selfishness and our sinfulness and we wander off course from time to time. But like a good shepherd, he comes and he brings us back. And Jesus, through his redemptive work as the good shepherd, laid down his life, shed his blood, redeemed us back and made us 
one of his own. And Jesus says, now my sheep, they hear my voice, they know me. And he leads our lives like a shepherd, taking care of his sheep, guiding us, feeding us, directing us, protecting us. And in a sense, we belong from a New Testament perspective to God in two ways. We belong to him because he created our lives. And then we belong to him in a secondary sense because he then redeemed our lives. After we wandered off as sheep, he redeemed us and became our shepherd in a spiritual sense, redeeming us back. And so again, these are reasons why, verse four, we should enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Again, these are reasons. Well, well, I don't have anything to be thankful for in my life. Well, just read the prior verses. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I can't find a single reason to be thankful. Yes, you can. May not be situational, circumstantial, may not be your moods or your feelings. But he says, these very things that we can know about God and and what he has done for us is the reason we can enter into his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Again, a picture of coming into the tabernacle or temple area where they would gather together and notice, be thankful to him and bless his name. Again, notice, be thankful to him. That is express thankfulness to him because that is what blesses him. The idea is that he is deeply blessed when we are a thankful people, when we're appreciative, when we're grateful. You know, and sometimes I think we struggle. I struggle getting started to pray. I, I, I struggle kind of, you know, getting engaged when it comes to uh, you know, uh, the, the worship meeting. Well, here the Bible tells us what to do. Here's the way that you enter into his presence, by entering in with thanksgiving and praise. That's how you get the spiritual motor going, if you would. I hate to use that analogy, but how, I just, I struggle with prayer. I struggle. Well, here's what you do. You just start thanking God and praising God and thanking God and praising God. And then all of a sudden your spirit becomes a right and you just start talking to God and prayer just takes off. You know, I'll say like prayers, a lot of times I, the analogy in my mind is kind of like if you go down to the ocean and, and the, the, when the waves are coming in, the breakers or the white water, it's kind of hard to get past those. But then if you get past those out into the deeper water, right, then it's just kind of you, you get out into the deeper area and there's not all that resistance to getting knocked over. And I feel like prayers like that. It's like you first start trying to pray in your flesh and all the inhibitions and the distractions and it's all the breakers, but you keep thanking God and praising God and pushing through. And ultimately, then you just get out into the deep where deep calls on the deep. And then you can begin to just start praying and, and spending time with the Lord as you enter deeply into his presence. You know, that's why we do what we do in the way that we do when we gather and we, we worship and sing and express praise and thanksgiving to the Lord at the beginning of a worship gathering. It's not just because it's kind of just a little format to kind of get everybody's, you know, kind of, you know, get everybody psyched up a little bit. And it's just kind of just gets, you know, spiritually revved up. So that's not the purpose, nor is it the opportunity for everybody to get into church late, though many do that as well. Sadly, there are people, and let's just be very candid, where literally they, they kind of set their watch to use the song service as the exact opportunity to be able to get to church just late enough to get in before the closing songs wrapping up. I don't know if that's really honorable to the Lord. You can be offended that I'm saying that, but my goal is not to impress you. My goal is to honor our Lord. And when we serve such an awesome God who very clearly says, sing to me, come before my presence in singing, it's my responsibility to tell you that's what we're supposed to do. The song service is something that God likes that God's worthy of. And that's why we do that. And so here he tells us, again, if we need more reason, verse four or verse five, for the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth, that word truth literally means his steadfastness, his stability. That's the idea there. He is true, unchanging. He is steadfast and stable. It endures to all generations. So again, if we need more reason, to come before his presence with singing, to be thankful and enter his courts with praise, the Lord is good. He's good. No good thing does he withhold from us, the Bible says. He is always good. Life may be bad, right? Sometimes life's bad. All of our lives. Sometimes life can get really, really bad. Sometimes society's bad. The world's bad. Maybe the outlook is bad. Conditions are bad. But the Lord is always good. And we can always still celebrate that. And we can always be thankful, Lord, no matter how bad it is, thank you that you're good. 
and that I can just rest in the fact that you are good and that your mercy, your unfailing love is everlasting. You keep loving unconditionally and being merciful. It never changes. And your truth, your stability, Lord, it endures through all generations. Well, let's quickly look at Psalm 101, one final short Psalm. He says, and I will sing again of mercy and justice to you, O Lord, I will sing. Now, this Psalm Short eight verses here, David seems basically to be writing these things, our best guess here, is probably at the very early part of his reign. Because if David were to write some of these things in the latter part of his reign, we'd probably scratch our head and say, kind of strange that you'd be writing that now, David, because some of the things that he says here, obviously he doesn't do too well with long term. But it's believed that David wrote this psalm right at the beginning of his reign, right when he was coronated. And again, that would make sense because these prior Psalms, 95 to 100, were coronation Psalms representing the celebration of the reign and rulership, excuse me, of God as king. And so perhaps that's why Psalm 101 is put here where it is, because it's believed that this was sort of David's coronation Psalm, or I guess we might say that when David was put in place as king, this was like his inaugural address. So here's David's inaugural address. These are things that matter to me as I'm God's king. As I rule on God's behalf and I reign as a representative for him, these are things that matter to me. So if that's the case, then very interesting. And notice what mattered to David. David said, number one priority for me, if I'm going to rule over people well or be a good leader, is I've got to be a worshiper. He says, I have got to be in right relationship with the Lord. I will sing of mercy and not just of God's mercy, but also of God's justice, of his, his faithfulness. To you, Lord, he says, I will sing praises. Again, we just I can't mention it enough because the Holy Spirit repetitiously puts it there. Notice the wills involved. I will sing praises. It's a choice. And notice, he says, I'm not just going to sing, but he says, God, I don't just sing for the sake of singing. And see, maybe that's the problem sometimes where we get off track. We think it's just singing. It's not just singing. Notice he says, verse one, to you, I will sing. That changes everything, right? If I'm remembering that when I sing worship songs, whether I'm privately alone, driving around in my car or standing in my you know, kitchen, helping with the, the dishes and, and you know, putting on a, a YouTube praise and worship video and I'm singing to the Lord, I'm singing to the Lord. I'm not just singing. <laughs> I'm not just trying out for American Idol. <laughs> I'm singing to the Lord. So whether it's personally or whether it's corporately, we come together and we sing to him, to you, Lord, I will sing praises. And then he speaks of his behavior and I will behave wisely in a perfect way. These were things David wanted to do. Now, the word perfect there doesn't mean no flaws. The idea of the word perfect speaks of integrity or guiltless. That is, I'm not doing something consciously that I know I'm guilty of. We might use the term blameless as another term here. It doesn't mean perfect as far as no mistakes. The idea is I'm a blameless person. I'm not consciously doing something that I can be held guilty for. I'm not willfully being disobedient. David says, this is what I want to do. If I'm going to be effective publicly as a king, then David says, numero uno priority, I've got to have integrity in my private life. I need to live right personally. I cannot try and be effective publicly, he says, if I'm not behaving wisely. Oh, when will you come to me? Notice, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Same word there, blameless, a heart of integrity. And David says, this is where effectiveness begins. This is where true relationship with God begins. Who I am in my house, who I am in my home. Because it is very easy to be one thing in our home and then be something completely different in public. And I'm not just talking about Christians. Lots of people are prone to this. We're all, in a sense, at risk of this. But that is something that is very important, is integrity, blamelessness, walking with God, being in right relationship with God, behaving wisely, begins in your own personal life, in your own walk, Walking with God wisely yourself, making good choices to please the Lord and honor the Lord, and walking within your own house with integrity. 
when no one else is around, where it's just you and your family. That is the true you. It really is. We have to know that of ourselves. That is who we truly are. That is the measure of our spirituality. You know, that's why I tell people all the time, you know, I, I thought I was starting to do pretty good spiritually as a young Christian man. I got saved after high school. And I'm like, man, I, you know, I'm kind of growing in the Lord here. And then, and then God gave me a wife. And then all of a sudden I realized, man, I'm still sinful. I can't believe how selfish I am still. I can't believe how impatient I am or how rude I can be. And, and then, you know, the Lord kind of puts a mirror up and he let, lets you grow a little bit within your house a little more. And then you start thinking, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm getting this down now and, then we're growing and we're serving the Lord together. And then God says, I got another one for you. Here's a kid. Oh, my goodness, Lord. I can't believe how selfish and impatient. And, 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 then, and then if you're really a glutton for punishment, you keep having more. And every time, right? And then God sends you to your job. And, it just, and all of a sudden, you realize realities about yourself. But so important. Where does walking wisely and walking appropriately spiritually begin in our home, within our house. Lord, help me to be a Christian within my house, 24-7. Reality, living out my relationship with you, that's very important. And David says, this is what I want to do. And notice, you can tell, verse 3, he says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Boy, that's a strong one. I hate, he says, the work of those who fall away, it shall not cling to me and a perverse heart shall depart from me and I will not know wickedness. So David here kind of trying to make a resolve. He says, look, this is one of the things I resolve. If I'm going to behave wisely, if I'm going to walk within my house with a perfect heart of integrity, then he says, one of the things I got to pay attention to is what I'm putting in front of my eyeballs, what I'm taking into my mind, what I'm looking at. He says here, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. <laughs> take, take that little phrase there and put that across your computer screen, put that in front of your television set. Man, that would just, that'd keep us all in check real good there. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I wouldn't look lustfully upon a maiden. And here, there is a conscious decision to some degree of making a determination that we don't set something the hard part is lots of junk comes before us without even asking for it, right? You, you walk through the mall, oh, hey, just that store. You walk, see a billboard. I mean, it's very difficult, even just commercials and things that are constantly, you watching them, oh, my goodness. And it's just, it's very difficult. And it's becoming more and more difficult. It's so accessible and it's so prevalent, so aggressive. But to the degree we can control, we want to be wise about not setting something wicked before our eyes. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that the eye becomes the gateway to our condition internally. And Jesus says, if your eye is dark, your whole body's going to become dark. So it is very valuable to keep in mind that when we set things before our eyes and we're looking upon things, it's not just a visual thing alone. We're defiling something within ourselves. We're messing up our mind. We're polluting our hearts and our spirit. And so here he says, if I'm going to live wisely, I have to make a determination to set nothing wicked before my eyes, he says, and, and I have to hate those who do fall away. The work, excuse me, not hate those, but hate the work of those who fall away. That is, David looked at those who turned away from God, and David says, I don't want to do that. I want to hate that. Those who turn away from God and rebel against God, he says, I, I want to hate those who turn hate the work, that practice of those who turn away from God. He says, I don't want that to cling to my life and I don't want a perverse heart within me. I want a perverse heart to depart from me. It's almost as if David recognized my heart is naturally bent or perverse. But he says, I want that to keep departing from me. I want to get rid of that from within me so that I won't know wickedness. So David says, these are things personally I want to do. And then he speaks about those that it seems he would allow within his administration to serve with him in the government there. He says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, that is a person who is, you know, one who tears other people down with their words, they're critical in spirit, they're chewing up people, they always have something, a slight or a criticism, just a very critical spirit in nature, talking about others. He says, him I will destroy, and the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. So David says, these are people that I don't want around me in my ministration. I don't want people who are arrogant and proud, and I don't want people who are vicious and slanderers with their mouths. 
David says, people like that, I, I, I want to remove them from my presence. As I rule as king, they will just defile the atmosphere of what I'm trying to do. He says, however, verse six, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. So David says, these are those I will look for to bring around me in partnership. These are those that I want to entrust opportunity to serve as administrators in my kingdom. He says, those who are faithful in the land, that's who I want to dwell with me, be my partners, my associates, those who will serve together with me. He who walks in a perfect way, again, the idea is one with integrity, he shall serve me. So notice, what was David looking for? David says, the main thing I'm looking for is people who are humble, people who have integrity. He says, those who are faithful. What's David's emphasis? Character. David says, I don't care about people's capability. Capability is, is really kind of, to some degree, very small on the importance scale. David says, character. Find me someone with character, someone who has integrity, who's blameless, who has a humble spirit, someone, he says, who's living and walking with God in their personal life with integrity, and someone who is faithful, reliable, dependable. Again, the Bible upholds this in the New Testament. It says in Paul writing to the Corinthians that it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. When Paul talks about entrusting and passing on ministry one to another, Paul says to Timothy, the things that you've heard and learned from me, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul said, Timothy, these are the ones. Look for faithful men, reliable, dependable, trustworthy, responsible people who, as I say, and I've been saying this a lot with the basic uh, class I've been doing with the senior boys at the school those who close the loop. They close the loop. People who complete things, finish things, carry it out, stay on task, don't deviate. They close the loop. Because, again, that seems to be the one thing we all can contribute is just being faithful, right? We may not all be talented. Ooh, that's me. <laughs> we may not all be smart. Ooh, that's me too. But we can all be responsible. True? We can all be reliable. We can all be faithful and committed. And that is a, a wonderful asset. And David here is the king. He says, find me faithful men. That, that's who I'm looking for. And verse seven, he says, he who works deceit, doing deceptive things, shall not dwell in my house. I'm not gonna let him be in the palace or among my ministration. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. In fact, early I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. And David says here, this is what matters to me in my administration. He says, I'm not chiefly concerned about reducing taxes or increasing the military, but he says, what I want to do is try and restore some morality. <laughs> so David says, those who are deceitful, those who tell lies, these kind of people, he says, I want to eliminate them from my presence. I'm not letting them be involved in my government. I'm not allowing them to be involved. I'm not going to let them have influence because people like that are ruinous. Would to God we get a few politicians like this back on the throne. <laughs> David certainly had a right mindset starting out. Get rid of liars and deceivers. They should not be the ones who are ruling and leading people. And he says, and whatever I can do to cut off these evildoers from the Lord's city, that's my primary goal to keep purity among the people of God. You know, I look at David's declaration here of how he says he would rule and reign. And certainly David himself didn't keep this perfectly. Those of us who know David's life would recognize that. And I could have spent this Psalm basically making David look like a bad guy, but I don't want to slander the poor guy. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And David wrote these things because this was his intention early on. He failed. He, he messed up in some areas. And we know that because we know the whole story. But this was his pure intention. And I look at David saying, this is how I want to rule and reign. And I tell you, I think it's a great picture, a great picture of how we should determine to reign and to rule over our heart. Proverbs talks about ruling our own spirit. 
And when you read this psalm here, this should be the way you and I want to rule our spirit. We should say to our own heart, I will sing, I will behave wisely, I will walk in a perfect way. And to rule our spirit to say, I'm not going to let myself set anything wicked before my eyes. I'm going to do what I can to drive away perversity. I'm going to keep myself from slandering my neighbors and becoming arrogant and proud. And, and I'm going to seek to be faithful. And Lord, I'm going to try and walk in the right way. And he says, verse 7, he who works deceit and he who lies, I'm going to eliminate him. And so you know what? When I find my heart wants to be deceitful, my heart wants to lie, I have to be aggressive and say, you know what? That is not going to rain on my heart. Those sins have to go. And, and, and would to God that we would say, that's a great way to rule ourselves. It would serve us well and we'd experience God's best. Let's stand together. Let's pray.